So my talk is called The Auteur Theory of Design, but before I get to it, uh, I checked my Twitter last night at dinner and I saw this tweet from uh, a Paul Sculthorpe. It says, can't believe I'm first in line for Gruber with only 16 hours to go. This is about 8, eight o'clock last night. And then the twit pic is a picture of, of uh, Mr. Sculthorpe in front of, in front of this beautiful building uh, waiting. So I just wanted to see where, where he was. I want to make sure he got a good seat. Okay. All right. <laughs> So author, when I think of the word author, I think novelist. I think uh, Hemingway, Twain, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, David Foster Wallace, George Orwell. And I think of a work that springs entirely from a single mind. Yes, there are editors, uh, there are trusted early readers who can provide the author with feedback and suggestions during the draft process. Uh, there are typesetters and cover designers and other creative people who are involved with the production of the final book. Uh, but there's no confusion or dispute over the attribution of the entirety of a novel as being by the writer. Uh, so let's compare and contrast that with movies. Uh, a movie, the, a film by credit, goes to the director. But what exactly does the director do? Uh, a screenplay, the screenplay is written by a screenwriter. The money is raised and budgeted and doled out by producers. The sets and locations and costumes are from the art director. The photography, the camera work, lenses, exposure, lighting, that's the cinematographer. The editor takes the footage shot by the cinematographer and splices it together, edits the scenes, arranges the scenes, and produces the final narrative whole. The performances are from actors. They're the ones who bring the characters to life. And the music is from the composer, if it's an original score, and uh, it's by whatever various pop music acts, if it's a soundtrack. So the director doesn't write the screenplay, which is the story, the plot, the scenes, the characters, the dialogue, doesn't raise the money to produce the film, doesn't design the sets or costumes or choose the locations, doesn't operate the camera, doesn't edit the footage, doesn't perform in the film itself. Now, admittedly, there are exceptions. There are directors who do do some of those roles in addition to directing. Uh, some directors do write the screenplay or have a hand in it. Some do help with the art direction. Or in the case of guys like Woody Allen and Clint Eastwood, they often appear as characters in their films. But in many of the cases, the director does none of those things. And yet, there it is at the beginning of the title craft, title credits, a film by director's name here. One man writes a novel. One man writes a symphony. It is essential for one man to make a film. That's a quote from Stanley Kubrick. Now, Stanley Kubrick is one of those directors who had a hand in everything uh, other than actually appearing on screen as, a, as an actor. He wrote screenplays. He produced, he edited, he oversaw the design and production of everything from the credit sequences to the advertisements. He cut his own trailers. Uh, and frequently, he even operated his own camera. He was a still photographer, uh, worked for Life magazine and Look magazine when he was a teenager. Uh, and he never really stopped being a photographer, even after he turned to filmmaking. So one of the great shots in his film, The Shining, is in a scene where Jack Nicholson's character, after he's... Uh, started going, I don't want to spoil it for if anybody hasn't seen it, started, let's just say he started going a little bit funny. 
So he's locked inside a walk-in freezer, an industrial, often industrial kitchen in a hotel, a big walk-in freezer by his wife. And he's locked inside, and he's at the door, banging on it, demanding that his wife, who's on the other side of the door, let him out. Now, one of the things that's special about The Shining is that Kubrick allowed his daughter, Vivian, to shoot a documentary of it uh, while they were in production. And the result is a simple, wonderful, visceral glimpse at what it was like on the set of a Kubrick film. It's a real fly-on-the-wall perspective. It doesn't feel like part of a promotional campaign, like in the modern sense of DVD extras, and it wasn't, it wasn't really much gloss to it. It really just seems like someone just had a camera there and was letting you get a glimpse of really what it was like to be there. And during this scene, you, she, she captured this scene. This is one of the scenes in her documentary, and you see Nicholson there standing at the door, and this is before they shot it, and they're just trying to figure out how to shoot it. And Kubrick is sort of walking around him with one of those director's loops that gives you, you know, in your eye, a little frame that looks like the movie, and he's doing it from the side, and he's like trying it over his shoulder, and none of it really likes. And then all of a sudden, he just, without saying anything, just drops down on the floor, gets on his back, and puts his head at the base of the door, looking up, you know, just, just gets down, and he's, you know, he's down there like this, and Jack Nicholson is standing over him, and here's the door, and he's like, yes, that's it, that's it. Uh, so what they got was this shot, and it's just a fantastic shot. And, uh, and then you see in the documentary the actual shooting of the scene, and it really was. It's, it's an actual, it's not like a special set. It looks like they were actually, it's, as far as I can tell, in a real walk-in freezer somewhere, and it's just Stanley Kubrick on the ground, there's another guy there to help him run the camera. Two guys on the ground, like, sort of, he actually ends up, uh, like, Nicholson is sort of standing like that, so that these two grown men can be between his legs. Uh, and Stanley Kubrick has, like, a light bulb just gaffer taped to his coat so they can get a little bit of fill light uh, underneath. Uh, now, that's, that's great, but I don't think that's exactly, I think that's actually misleading, sort of, in terms of what, Kubrick meant in his quote about one man making a film. It's not necessarily little details like that of the director single-handedly getting down on the ground, taping lights to his jacket and stuff like that. What it really is about is that what I really think he meant is that it's essential for one man to be making uh, the final decisions. Now, why is this? There was, in the early days of Hollywood, back in the studio era, a view that the director was just another wheel in the cog. Uh, the studios really sort of set up, and you still see this in the credits, in the way that there's this very sort of meticulous hierarchy in the credits of films uh, that's sort of set up like on a factory model. It was sort of like a, the original studio. They were like factories that, that spat out films. And in this view of directing... Uh, the director had a very clear-cut job that was sort of like the way that the screenwriter, you hand in the screenplay, and the cinematographer, you run the camera and capture the scenes on film. And if you're the editor, you take that film and you splice it together into a whole. And the director had a, was deemed to have had a similar task, which was to literally direct what was going on on set, that it was about telling people where to stand, yelling, action, and cut and deciding on the spot whether a given take was good enough or needed to be shot again. 
And in that early studio era, directors often didn't even see the movie during editing. After the last day of shooting on the set, the footage went into the hands of the editor. The editor reported to the producer, and the next time the director saw the footage, and often even the final cut of the film, was at the premiere. In this view, directing wasn't filmmaking. Directing was effectively conducting what happened on set during the shooting. But that's clearly not the ideal role of the director in filmmaking. The role of the director is, or at least should be, much deeper than that. And even in the old studio era, where there were directors like, for example, one of my favorites, Alfred Hitchcock, whose films were all of a kind. They were clearly and undeniably Hitchcockian. There are cinematographers whose works often have a similar look. There are actors who can bring the same presence to every role they play. Uh, there are composers like uh, Danny Elfman, John Williams, who can bring a similar sort of, oh, I know who wrote this music, feel to the scores that they compose for movies. But there are directors who can make entire films feel a certain consistent similar way. Hence the auteur theory of filmmaking. That's a term that was uh, coined by Francois Truffaut in the 50s. And the auteur theory can be expressed very clearly in a nut. The director is the author of the film. Now, that's not the same sense of authorship as with novels, clearly, because it's not writing, not shooting, not editing, not designing. It's creating. It's making these sort of meta decisions of the people underneath who are doing the very specific things. So it's also not to imply, like with authorship of a novel, that it's single-handed. And I think some people, a lot of people get perturbed, like if you're the screenwriter, the auteur theory is, uh, well, hey, I'm the one who authored the screenplay. And, and there's you know, mixed feelings of other people in the industry about this idea that directors get the film by credit. That's why I think the word auteur has stuck with us, even though in English there's a perfectly acceptable synonym, author. When I first heard about the auteur theory of filmmaking, I, I, I did. I thought it was pretentious to use this French word where there's a perfectly serviceable English word that means the same thing. But having given it much thought over the last few years, I actually think auteur has come to mean something else, this sort of meta level of creation uh, that isn't necessarily about single-minded uh, authorship. So let's go back to that same Kubrick quote. Note that he used a different verb for the filmmaker. Writing is single-handed. Making, though, isn't necessarily. Uh, and as a side note, if you watch in terms of the one man uh, aspect of the quote, you'll see that there's often multiple screenwriters credited for a screenplay. And you'll usually see multiple producers. But you almost never, ever see co-directors. And the few times that you do, it's almost always brothers. The Cohen brothers, the Wachowski brothers, the Farrelly brothers. Uh, and I don't think that's by chance. So the result of this movement of the industry toward director-driven filmmaking is that movies got better as directors gained more creative control over their work. That doesn't mean that all movies got better. But the best movies, the greatest movies, were the ones where directors had the most creative freedom and control. One of the first great 
movies that I think people would say applies to this auteur theory, Citizen Kane, where Orson Welles more or less uh, took a bunch of actors, a bunch of money, and a bunch of cameras, and then came back with Citizen Kane. Uh, and the pinnacle now, I think, of this movement is Pixar. Undeniably, I would say they are the most successful film studio of the past two decades. Their films range only from great to really great. And they are a completely director-driven studio. Unlike the rest of Hollywood, where directors more or less work like freelancers, attaching themselves to individual projects, and you know, one movie to the next might be for different studios, directors at Pixar are full-time and, to date, lifelong Pixar employees. Their directors don't just make the movies, they run the company. And I think that this lesson applies to all creative, collaborative endeavors. Every collaborative project, a movie, a website, uh, apps, architecting a new building, is better off with an auteur in charge. So my thesis is the quality of any collaborative creative endeavor tends to approach the level of taste of whoever has control. The film industry also gives us a good model for determining who truly has control. And that's important because in many projects, I'm sure everybody here has experience with this, there's someone who's nominally in charge, but in truth answers to and can be and often is overruled by someone else. Could be in a typical design studio, the client. Um, or it could be the meddling, the meddling boss. In the movie industry, they have the term final cut. And a director who has final cut has a clause in their contract that says whatever film they turn in, that's the film that's going to be shown. When a director with final cut says this is how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. For a director without final cut, and most don't get that, for the obvious reason that movie studios are run by bureaucratic assholes, <laughs> and bureaucratic assholes tend not to give away uh, authority. They turn in a director's cut of the film to the studio, and then the studio has the right to change whatever they want before it hits the, studio, hits the theaters. So what I'm saying is the quality of the work, I've been talking about movies, but this applies to anything, tends to approach the level of taste of whoever has final cut for that project. Uh, but this works in both directions, negative and positive. So you wind up with a situation like this. There's just a little graph I made up with no real unit of measure. But the blue line represents the level of taste of, of whoever is in control of any given project. And the red line represents the quality of the work over time. So y-axis quality, x-axis time. <clears throat> this is the other case, though. This is where the level of taste whoever is in control is lower than the talent that is attempting to put it together. This is my answer to a question that I've thought about ever since I started working out of college and on websites, software, design projects, all sorts of stuff. Often plagues me. Why do some projects not rise to the level of talent of those who made it? And this is my answer. Now, obviously, I'm simplifying things greatly. It's simplistic to describe quality as a simple up-and-down, two-dimensional, high-low graph. Uh, going back to movies again. Reasonable people can, can disagree greatly over what makes for a good movie. 
uh, a good app, a good anything. There are different ways for art to be good. And it's a lot easier, to, but it's a lot easier to reach agreement over what's truly bad. Um, there are other skills you want in an auteur other than taste. Confidence, people skills, the ability to clearly express uh, your thoughts and desires in plain language. An open mind that is willing to consider suggestions. But taste, I say, is the essential thing. When a person in charge's taste is higher than the level of talent, their choices tend to incrementally move things better each step of the way. When their taste is lower, their decisions amount to guessing. So just as an example, just consider something like very, very high-end bicycles. I think we could all agree that someone racing at the very highest level, someone who is in the Tour de France, uh, may well have need for, let's just say, I have no idea what their bikes cost. Let's just say $20,000. And I don't think anybody would say, well, that, you know, if you're, if you're in the Tour de France, $20,000 bicycle is reasonable. Um, most of us, though, most of us, we don't even need, let's say, a $5,000 bicycle. Now, do I personally believe that there is a difference between a $20,000 bicycle and a $5,000 bicycle? Absolutely. I totally believe it. But could I tell the difference? No. Because they're both far, far above my taste in bicycles. But that's the situation that the person in control is in when their taste is only, let's say, okay, uh, but the team that they're in charge of is presenting them with choices that might range from okay to good to great. They can't tell the difference qualitatively, so they, they guess. Now, they may not think they're guessing. Uh, they'll adamantly deny that they're guessing. They'll just pick some arbitrary criterion that's not really about quality and, and go by that. But guessing is exactly what they're doing. And wrong decisions lead to more wrong decisions. Mistakes cascade. And they have a devastating effect on morale from the creative people who may well have taste, at least in their specific area, and they know that the wrong decisions are being made, even if they can't explain exactly why. Now, one way that movies fall short as a metaphor for the work that a lot of us do, like websites and uh, software, is that movies are eventually completed. It's a lot of work, but eventually they're finished, they're released, and that's it. The movie's done and the crew disperses, and they go to work on another movie. Uh, software and websites tend to go through constant iterative development, and they're getting better or getting worse over time. Um, there are a few counterexamples, like the way that George Lucas seemingly won't stop diddling with the original Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> and there's Blade Runner, a classic film, one of the best science fiction films ever made. But in the latest Blu-ray edition, it includes five different cuts of the film, and they... They actually, it, endings are different, there's, effects are different. Interestingly, with Blade Runner, each subsequent cut over the years has, in my opinion, made the film better. Not so with Star Wars, alas. Uh, Han shot first. Uh, but maybe TV shows, I think, are a better example for web and software teams because they're not once and done. It's a constant iteration over time. Not quite the same thing, because episodic TV is still a new episode every week, whereas, say, iTunes 10 is the 10th version of the exact same app. But it's a little bit closer, I think, uh, analogy-wise. Now, the auteur role on TV shows is not necessarily the director. It's a person that the industry calls the showrunner. 
which is often the creator of the series, and who does sometimes, but usually not more than a few times a season, simply because directing is so time-consuming and the showrunner has so many other things to do, they do occasionally direct episodes. Um, but they also write, they're in charge of all the casting, they're in charge of everything. Effectively, they are the auteur of the series. Uh, and what I'm talking about are these movie-caliber shows, like David Chase's The Sopranos, um, Matthew Weiner's uh, Mad Men, David Simon's The Wire, uh, Alan Ball's Six Feet Under, J.J. Um, Abrams' uh, Lost. The list goes on. Uh, on all my favorite shows over the years, there's an auteur overseeing the whole thing, a person who not only insists that each episode on its own strives for a certain level of quality, but who also insists that the narrative arc of the entire season strives for that level of quality. In short, there is someone very clearly in charge. So consider, lastly, uh, a company of particular interest to me. So Steve Jobs, what, what is he? What does he do? What, what's his gift? Bill Gates was originally a programmer. He was actually a very, very talented programmer. Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, was a genius hardware engineer. Johnny Ives is currently a hardware designer. He's a designer for Apple. Steve Jobs is none of these things. He's not a programmer. He's not an engineer. He's not a designer. Uh, is he a manager? Well, I guess, but he's certainly not simply a manager. Uh, he's a very good pitch man, but he only goes on stage two or three times a year for that. That's clearly the secondary nature of his role as a spokesman for the company. His true gift is that he's an arbiter of taste. His taste is not unerring. No one's is. Remember the, uh, the hockey puck mouse? Um, my wife, however, was, was a big fan of that mouse, so I don't know, maybe he was right. Uh, but he is, in short, I would say, an auteur of computer gadgetry. In the same way that, say, Goodfellas is fairly credited as being by Martin Scorsese, I, I would say that that this could fairly be credited as by Steve Jobs. So here's one more quote from the man, Stanley Kubrick. The test of a work of art is, in the end, our affection for it, not our ability to explain why it is good. So again, that is why every collaborative project, movie, website, app, whatever you're working on, is better with an auteur in charge. Benevolent dictatorship is more effective than democratic consensus. Consensus is reached through argument and explanation, but some decisions are best made for reasons that cannot and should not be explained. Final cut. What's called for at times is subversion in the name of art. Recall that back in the studio era, directors had no role in the editing of the film. But editing is where the film is truly made. So what Alfred Hitchcock did, faced with this, uh, was meticulously plot out the editing of his films before he even shot them. He more or less invented the modern practice of storyboarding. I said this once before in a previous talk, and, and somebody called me out that Disney was doing storyboarding, but that's because they did cartoons. Nobody was doing storyboarding for live-action films, so please, no email about that. Uh, Hitchcock was first. Uh, 
But so what ended up is he shot his films on stage in such a way that they could only be spliced together in one way to make narrative sense in the end. So in an era when no directors were given final cut, he found a way to give himself final cut. And the results speak for themselves. That's my message for you. Uh, thanks for having me here, and, and thank you all for coming. Thanks very much. Thank you.